0: I don't know if you uh, remember this from the summer, but there was a a significant rescue that took place in Ma City Beach in Florida. It took place in July. Uh, There were uh, two boys, and they were kind of playing along in the the shore there, and they all of a sudden got pulled into one of those riptides. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they literally pulled these two boys out into the ocean, and they're screaming for help, and their mom hears them, and mom goes running out, and guess what happened to her? She also gets pulled in there. People can start hearing the screams and the hysteria. Other family members tried to start, you know, rescue. They found themselves in the same predicament, getting pulled out of this riptide. There was a, an experienced swimmer. He could only get so far. He's like, I, I can't do anything. And there's this woman named Jessica Simmons, smart gal. She decided to tell everybody, let's start grabbing arms and we're going to form a human chain. And so they had some of them anchored on the shore. And they started all these strangers, people all kind of gathering, kind of watching the scene unfold. And everybody starts grabbing arms. They have about 80 folks. Here's a picture of what that looked like. And they formed a human chain and reached out and rescued every single one of these family members that had gotten pulled away in this riptide. That's a good deal, right? And I tell you this because that is a picture of what the body of Christ is to be. We are rooted and grounded in Christ, who is our head, and he is working through his people, his body, to provide rescue, to provide the presentation of the gospel, and to show the love of Christ. And it also underscores just how important community and caring are. And I I tell you this uh, because a lot of folks, I would say a lot of Christians, kind of just dismiss How important it is to actually be connected in community in the body of Christ. Why is living in community and caring so critically important? As we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we came to chapter 4 where we found three God-centered values that are so different than the normal life under the sun. And the second one we saw was the value of community. You found it in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 Through twelve, And let's just kind of take a look at it because what we'd like to do this week, I just want to take a special message to highlight and focus on just how important it is that you or I are connected in the body of Christ and we're demonstrating care to the people in our lives. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9. He says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. There is a far greater productivity that comes when you're united with another individual or a group of individuals. You can only do so much as one individual, but you actually have more than one. You have some synergism. You got a one plus one kind of three equals equation. And then notice what he also said in verse 10. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Not only do you have greater productivity, but you've got help and assistance in time of need. And in Solomon's time, there weren't sidewalks and roads where you can just kind of walk along and don't really have to worry about a whole lot of hazards. No, there were rocks on the trails. There were pits and there were cliffs. And it was not uncommon even for the most experienced traveler to trip and to fall at different times. And that's fine if you don't break a a bone in your body But if you should break an arm or a leg or you find yourself that you slipped into a pit and you can't get out, that all of a sudden becomes a perilous situation. Unless, of course, you've got a companion that can help rescue you. And that's true physically. But think of it also in terms of like even spiritually. You and I, all of a sudden, we buy into some temptation. We're facing trials that are overwhelming us. If you do not have someone connected with you, you're going to find yourself in trouble. And furthermore, he says in verse 11, to just accentuate just how important community is. Look, notice the human comfort that comes from being connected. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? He's talking about people lying together to stay warm. There's no sexual meaning here. What he's talking about is an experience of everyone who would travel through the desert. And when it got cold... What you did is you actually slept next to each other to provide warmth. It's kind of like the equivalent of like saying, let's say last night you decided to have a little family campout. I don't know if you guys would go camping in your backyard, but I've done it on multiple occasions with my kids. And, you know, but what if you said, hey, listen, what we're going to do, kids, everybody take a corner of the yard. Uh, Mom, you over here and I'm going to be over here and we're just going to get through the night. Well, it's going to be pretty, um, pretty miserable. But it'll be a lot better if you're sleeping next to each other and huddled up together. In fact, you might even get some rest. That's the principle here. He's saying, you know, when you've got connection, you've got warmth. There's human comfort. It's like those coals. You know, if you've got burning coals and you keep them together, you can keep them burning for a long time. But you separate them and you cause isolation. They start to go out rather quickly. It just accentuates how important it is to be connected. And then finally, he says in verse 12, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Another benefit of having community is you've got what's called security. It's one of the reasons why you don't travel alone. Certainly in those times, if you travel alone, you're pretty easy pickings for a thief or someone to beat you up. But if you got two or more, all of a sudden now... That becomes a rather daunting experience. And the thief is going to think twice if you've got several with you. And we talked about a cord of three strands. He's basically accentuating their strength in numbers. And what he's doing is he's highlighting the value of being connected and being in community. It's so critically important. And yet, oftentimes, even for a lot of Christians, we've kind of got this lone ranger approach. It's like, I really don't need Others. And I'd like to actually tell you why so many people think that way. Get ready. If you're kind of the Lone Ranger, I don't really need others. This is going to be painful to hear, but we're going to address it. The reason there's so many isolationists who are Christians is because they are actually self-centered in their orientation. It's the idea is like, you know, I really don't need others. And primarily, it's driven by you see others by what they can do to benefit you, and if like, nah, you don't really have anything to offer, nah, 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 nothing to offer me, and you just go into isolation. That is so very different than what God is seeking to accomplish in the human heart, to move us from a self-centered individual, which is our state and and before we know Christ, to move us to a Christ-centered, God-centered perspective. Where now we are actually seeking to live to honor God and to actually be a blessing to others. Anytime you see people willing to serve, extending care, thinking of others before themselves, you know that you've got a divine activity taking place. You're moving from self centered to God centered, and there's only one that can do that, and that is namely God Himself. And so I want you to understand how important it is to care, to be connected. And to be in community. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 25, because there is a scene in which Jesus is asked perhaps one of the most profound questions that could ever be asked. And I've been wondering if this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, wasn't on Jesus' mind when he gave the answer. Why is living in community and caring so critically important? Well, let's take a look at this scene here in chapter 10 in, in the gospel of Luke and beginning in verse 25, you find a lawyer and he stood up and he put Jesus or put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me uh, help you understand who a lawyer is. These were folks that were excellent in understanding the law of God. They were they gave themselves to study it. They were highly esteemed for their knowledge. Oftentimes people liked their life. Uh, Because they seemed to understand who God is. They had answers to all the important questions. Uh, The lawyers that functioned in Israel, they were the ones that were basically kind of helping uh, lead out in like the administration of justice in Israel. They were respected for their views, their opinions and their knowledge. And this teacher, though. He does something to basically say, I'm taking you on Jesus. Notice what he does. He stood up. Everybody is seated. Jesus is seated. He's teaching. And this lawyer goes, you know, I know a lot of folks think you're a pretty smart rabbi. And uh, I want you to know that you've met your match in me. And he stands up. It's really basically an, uh, an assertive gesture. And what he's going to do is he's going to try to discredit Jesus. He's going to try to basically say, listen, I'll match you mind to mind. And I'm going to win. He's not really interested. He's not a seeker. He's a scoffer, and he's going to test Jesus, and he asks this question, verse 25, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life uh, was a synonym for the kingdom of God. It's what shall I do to inherit life with God, eternal life, that is both unending, eternal in nature, and it is also abundant. Life with God, where God is reigning in a human heart and he's reigning in a kingdom. What shall I do to be a part of the resurrection of the righteous in the end? What shall I do to inherit it, to acquire it? And so he's asking this question, and it is an excellent question. In fact, I want you to understand that it was not uncommon for people to interface with rabbis, and Jesus is functioning like an itinerant rabbi, And asking these kind of questions. And this particular question was one of the most popular questions to be asked. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a great question. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Do you see the high honor that Jesus gives to the word? He doesn't say. Well, what do you think? He doesn't say, well, what do the scribes or the Pharisees or the priests think? What are the traditions of the elders? How do they answer that question? Because that really isn't all that important. What's really important is what God has said. And so he asks them that question. I I want you to know the most important question that you and I can ask is what's found like in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What does the Scripture say? What does the Word of God say About the matter. And so, Jesus turns the question onto him. And look at this reply. It's an excellent one, verse 27. And he answered, Well, it says this You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He has an excellent answer. And when he talks about loving the Lord God, he says, with the entirety of your being. He's not trying to kind of break, parse it out like in these different parts. He's trying to say everything about you your heart, your emotions, your will, your soul, your innermost being, your mind, that which you reason with, and your strength, the abilities that you have. He says, really, you're to love the Lord your God with everything about you. And he also makes an addition that shows just how trained he is in understanding the Scripture. He adds, "And your neighbor, as your self." The first part about loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength—that's found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. This was very familiar to the Jewish people. Uh, they actually had it. Maybe you've seen this. Uh, conservative and Orthodox Jews still practice this today. They have what is called a phylactery. In fact, I'll show you a picture of one here. Uh, you see that like little leather box there? Okay. And you see those scriptures that are wrapped up there? There are four different scriptures there. One of them is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And it's verse 5 that says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These were these like prayer boxes that they had. And so this was very common to them. But what this this scribe does, this lawyer does, he also adds Leviticus 19, 18, which says that you are to love people, you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do you gain eternal life? I want you to know it's the same both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not like, well, there's one way in the Old Testament and another in the New. It is always by grace, through faith, that is demonstrated in love. You don't earn it. You can't acquire it. You can't inherit it. It's always by grace, through faith, And it's demonstrated in love. And when he talks about loving the Lord God with everything that you have, you need to understand that love and faith are almost used synonymously. To love God is to trust Him and have faith in Him. And to say that you believe in God, if you really do, it's to actually love Him. Some people make this mistake, and this is a critical one if you're making it. I believe certain facts about Jesus. I believe that they're true. But it does not equate from a response of love and obedience. God is choir, wants you to have a lot more than just head knowledge. He wants you to know him. Faith. Love. And so when he says about loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's saying you absolutely trust him. You're obedient to him. And so this lawyer gives an excellent answer. In fact, look at verse 28 jesus affirms him he says verse 28 and he said to him you have answered correctly do this and you will live you have answered orthos um are you you familiar with like orthodox it means that which is correct or right or if like you've got like your teeth are like all like kind of jumbled up in your mouth and you could go and see an orthodontist what does an orthodontist do they they torture you, right? They put metal in your mouth and they, they torture you. But what they're trying to do is what? Straighten your teeth. And that's what this is. And Jesus says, You've got the exact correct answer. That is right. You've lined it up. But what he says, he says, Do this. Do you see this? Do this and you will live. He's saying, You got the right answer. This is how you are to live. When he says, do this and you shall live, what this should have done is take this lawyer and said he should have backed down and sat down. Because there is no way that you and I can truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, this is a fine group of people here. Maybe the best in Central Texas. But how are you doing loving the Lord your God with everything about you, all the time. Anybody feeling really good, like, yeah, man, I'm nailing it. No. We, we fail all the time, starting with me. How about the loving the neighbor as yourself? You're always putting another's interest before your own? Really? Is that what it looks like? Let me just come and visit your home for just a day. That's all I need, right? Of course you and I fail. And what Jesus is doing, he is showing that the, he gives them the law. When God gave us law, he's saying, This is the way to live. But the law also shows that we are fallen people. We are incapable of ourselves. Not only are we sinners, we miss the mark. We can't follow the law. But that God is going to need to provide a savior because there's nothing that we can do about it. And so that's what he's doing. He's saying, really, friends, there's no conversion apart from conviction. And that's what the law does, like it says in Romans 3:20. 20, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in a sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gives the law. This is the way to live. We can't do it. And it shows that we're sinners in need of a savior. And that's what he's doing. Jesus says, you know, do this and you will live. This guy should have said, I am incapable. I fall short. I need a savior. And the savior was standing in front of him. But that's not why he asked the question. And to show this man's heart, he is you can see that he's rattled and he is like, I have got a backpedal fast. I have been nailed. So verse 29, though, he says, But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? If you've ever taken debate, this is actually one of the tactics. You get in trouble, throw this out. Wait. Let's define the terms. What do you mean, neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So, the the Jews, the, the word neighbor, you know, means re- literally one who is near to you. But this is what the Jews did. They took that word neighbor, one who is near to you, and said one of us, who is near to you. And so he's asking, well, who? Wait a second here now. Huh. I gave the answer, but uh, who? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus is going to basically lay it out. Who is one's neighbor? So he says, verse 30. Now, before I read, many of you are very familiar with this. You would probably be familiar and call it the parable of the good Samaritan. And it's known as the parable of the good Samaritan, but I just want to point this out to you. Jesus never... ...called it a parable. It likely is something that has actually happened. Something that would be familiar with those who are listening. Perhaps something actually very familiar to the very lawyer who is asking the question. And so Jesus replied and said, "...a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell on robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead." And so Jesus then tells him about the situation... Let me give you a little geography lesson here. In Israel, you've got Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. Uh, it's so, that's why you always read that people are going up to Jerusalem or they're going down from Jerusalem. Jericho is kind of off to the uh, north and to the east, and it is 800 feet below sea level. Within 10 miles, it's 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. Within a 10-mile span... You drop 3,300 feet. And it is a, it's got cliffs, there is hardly any vegetation, and it is a difficult road to travel. Now, just so you understand how popular of a road it was, Herod actually established his winter palace in Jericho. And so you had a lot of government officials that would go back and forth from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You had everything that gets accompanied with the Romans. You've got wealth and people and trade. And it was also in Jericho where a lot of the priests and the Levites, that's where they lived. It was a well-to-do city. There were a lot of well-to-do people. And they made their trek back from Jerusalem and to Jericho back and forth, especially priests and Levites who had duties at the temple so they would make this trek. Well, uh, this was such a dangerous place um, that they were what would happen is that criminals would take full advantage of this they would see these people traveling and they would basically try if they felt like they it was they could get away with it to accost them rob them and take them of their stuff it's why you never traveled alone so dangerous was the journey between jerusalem and jericho it was referred to and given the name the path of blood or the ascent of blood so common was it was it that you would actually get beat up and taken advantage of. And that's exactly what happens. And Jesus says, And so there is this man, and he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him, and they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Everything you could imagine, the broken teeth, the blood, perhaps even a compound fracture, it would be very evident. And the man was so beat up that he looked dead. They stripped him. You and I, we've got plenty of clothes. But actually, a lot of folks didn't have a change of clothes. So they literally, to take clothes, would be something else that you could have. They not only took whatever he was carrying, they even stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. They left him naked. He's bloody. He's in the dirt. And he looks like he's dead. But hope. Hope is there. Look at this. Verse 31. And by chance, a priest, one of the very best of men was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priests were Levites, and they were also direct descendants of Aaron. They kind of had the lead roles in the temple. They were the ones that were involved in the teaching of the law, the administration of the temple, the religious education of the people. They were involved in like inspecting uncleanness, and they were held in high esteem. And this priest, you would think, if anybody is going to help, it's a guy who's been leading in the worship of God, doing service at the temple of God, and yet when he sees this guy, he looks like he's dead. Maybe he's thinking, well, he's dead, and if to touch a dead person, if you're a Jewish person, you touch the dead person, it made you ceremonially unclean. But he's already done with his ceremonial service, and yet the Bible says that he's half dead. Jesus is saying, he's not totally dead. He just looks like he's dead. He's half dead. This priest. it's kind of a colorful way of saying he refused to love his neighbor he passed by on the other side well then there's another guy that passes by verse 32 likewise a levite also when he came to the place and saw him he passed by on the other side a levite uh, also they assisted the priest in the service of the temple they involved in a lot of uh, help, sometimes even religious education. They were involved in some teaching, but their role was to support the priests. And this Levite, he sees this guy, and he too passes by. I don't know if they were afraid to be ambushed. I don't know if they thought they were just hard hearted. They couldn't be inconvenienced. They didn't care. Maybe they uh, incorrectly thought, well, God brought judgment to them. And I don't want to interfere with that. You know, some people kind of just like have this completely wrong view of God. And he passes by. You know, this situation is not too unlike what happened to LaShonda Calloway, July 2007, Wichita, Kansas. LaShonda William Calloway was actually at uh, a convenience store. She was accosted and actually left to die in this convenience store. We actually know exactly what happened because they had cameras. Here it is in this convenience store of what happened. And furthermore, did you know that there were five people recorded on the camera that actually walked past her, saw her lying there, and did nothing about it well well that 's not completely true there was there was one that stopped, pulled out a cell phone, took a few pictures, and then left. It was horrific. the uh, spokesman gordon Basham, Basham said quote. It was tragic to watch. The fact that people were more interested in taking a picture with a cell phone and shopping for snacks than helping this innocent young woman is frankly revolting. The Wichita police chief, Norman Williams, said it even stronger. That's crazy. What happened to our respect for life? Doesn't anybody care anymore? Well, then look at verse 33, though. But... A Samaritan. If you were with Jesus when he is recounting what happened, there would have been a... They hated the Samaritans. There was a Samaritan who was on a journey. And he came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. Let me help you understand just how vicious it was between the Samaritans and the Jews. 722 B.C., the Assyrians came, they attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported many of the Jews away. This is recorded not only in the Bible, but even in Syrian records, where you actually have Sargon II, the king of Assyria, recording the number of people he hauled out of the northern kingdom. And what they would do is then they would actually bring forced resettlement from other people from other conquered areas in their empire, and they forced them to relocate into this northern kingdom. And so the Jews that remained started intermarrying and living with these foreign people. And what happened was that the Jews in the South despised them. Now, they were called the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans, they tried to follow and worship God. They actually worshiped Yahweh. They had the Pentateuch. They had their own version. But they didn't go down to Jerusalem for a variety of reasons to worship. They actually set up their own worship center at Mount Gerizim. And so there was this... They just despised one another, both on religious and ethnic grounds. And to say that a Samaritan would do this, this would be kind of like revolting to the Jews. No one would expect a Samaritan to act this way. A Samaritan would be known by his speech, by his manners, by his conduct. To see this guy that he's actually taking care of him, he's feeling compassion for him. It speaks of a concrete expression of love, something that was felt deeply within. And notice what he says, verse 34. And Jesus said, "And the Samaritan, he came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he bandages him up his wounds. He puts oil. It's a kind of like a healing remedy." Uh, wine would be used as a disinfectant so infection doesn't set in. He's bandaging him up. He's taking care of him. He's putting him on his beast. He's doing everything that you would do to show a lavish love. I want you to know that if this Jew that had been beat up was capable, it would be likely he'd even push away this kind of help. How so deep is the resentment? And yet, when you see this word wound, you need to understand just how vicious this guy's been beat up. It's the word traumata. It's where we get our word trauma. Violently injured, wounded, emotional shock. And yet the Samaritan, you see his courage. You know, the thieves that just beat this guy up are likely out there. But you know what? He's going to take care of this guy. He doesn't even know it. And furthermore, his character is seen by the compassion that he shows. And so notice what he does. Verse 34, he came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. To kind of give you just a little bit of framework, let's kind of rewind American history. Let's go to 1875 and let's say you're an American Plains Indian and you show up in Dodge City and you've got on your horse a cowboy that's been beat up, scalped, and got a few arrows running through him. And this same Indian rents a room and takes care of this cowboy. Now... You would think like, well, knowing Dodge City, knowing what's going on between the Plains Indians and all these folks that are moving in on their territory, you would just, just, just dump that guy and run. And but this Samaritan, he doesn't do that. He takes care of him, spends the night with him, nursing him to health. And look at this. If you want to see grace lavished upon lavish, look at verse 35. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Two denarii would be worth about two months. It's about 48 nights based upon the charge that would be for spending a night. He pays up front. So think about it. Going to like a hotel and saying, I'm going to rent this room for two months. And I want you to take care of this guy. And if there's more that's owed, he makes this promise. I'll repay when I return. Who is this guy? You see, this is like. Grace upon grace. This is just lavish love. This is caring to a degree that most people, if any, have ever encountered. And so then Jesus, telling about this account, he asked this question Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So Jesus has now changed the question. It's not like, who is my neighbor? He's asking, who has been a neighbor to this man? And this lawyer, you've got to just know his mind is spinning. The reels are running. And he said to him, verse 37, well, the one. Notice he can't even use the word Samaritan. The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. What Jesus is doing is he's showing this is what it looks like to be in my kingdom. Because in my kingdom, caring is a priority. In Jesus' disciple-making ministry, there is going to be a love for God and for a love for others. In a Christ-centered approach for life, there is not only living to the glory of God and loving and trusting him, there is going to be the expression of genuine care. Now, this command to go and do likewise, and it's kind of a present imperative, meaning a continual way of life. He's not saying, hey, this is a condition on how you get into the kingdom. No, what he's saying is this is a response once you're in it. You want to know what it looks like? It looks a lot like love. Now, for the, for the um, Samaritan, I mean, you're thinking like, wow, that was rather costly, the kind of love that was lavished by the Samaritan. But I want you to think about the Levite and the priest. Think about how costly it was for them on the missed opportunity to be a good steward of all that God had given them. They could have become better men had they actually taken advantage of the situation that God presented to him. But I want you to also think about the Samaritan. Do you know just how many countless acts of kindness have been done because of this one act by the Samaritan? I mean, we've... uh, Even today, hospitals that are named after this guy. The Good Samaritan. There are ministries. There are countless acts of kindness that are shown to others because of this one act of kindness. I mean, we even have RV parks and RV clubs named Good Sam's. All get their origins from who? This guy. Because God is saying, I want you to know what it looks like to be in my kingdom. It is to love me and to show that love. To truly care about people. And you and I can't do this. That's why we need a savior. We fall short. God says, I understand that. You trust me and let's see what my strength looks like in you. Let me show you what love looks like. Now, I, w- I want to give you some research that took place years ago. It's, it's embarrassing. And so I'm not going to name the se- seminary in which this took place. But there was some researchers, a guy by the name of Darlene and Batson, they went to a particular seminary. They grabbed a group of theological students that were in training to be pastors and missionaries. And they said, listen, you need to go and cut across campus, go to a particular building, and you need to preach a message on the Good Samaritan. And so they would send them off one by one as they're kind of working with these guys. And some of them, they said, you're actually running late, so you're going to need to hurry. Now, what these two researchers did is they actually hired an actor who acted as if he was half dead, he was all dressed up as if he had been beat up and mangled. He's bleeding. He's barely alive. And he is in the direct path of where these students will go to get to this building. 90% of the students that were said, hey, you need to hurry up. You're a little late. Literally passed this guy over. Some of them literally stepped over the guy. It's like, I can't help because i got to go preach a message on the Good Samaritan. And they walked over this guy. And we're like, what are they thinking? And that's really what I'd like to ask you. Are you thinking? Who is it that you are being called to show compassion for? You see, caring for people is a kingdom concern for all of us. God wants us to love him with our hearts and our lives. And when we do, and we have this kind of love, and God fosters this kind of love through Christ, we care for others as he's intended. And, you know, we can actually find ourselves getting trained to get better at caring. I mean, it's important to gain skills. I think a lot of us, we've gone to school. Uh, we've got training to acquire schools. Maybe we went to university, tech school. We were mentored by someone so that we can do things better. Because training, frankly, can be very helpful. Let's say tomorrow you get in your car and it doesn't start. And you just are, do not know what to do. You need help. So on one end of the spectrum of help is an individual that doesn't even know how to open the hood of a car. Don't, don't put your hand down if that's your category. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't know how, to, I didn't know how to open my hood, okay? On the other end of the spectrum is someone that has so much training that they can rebuild engines and do. Who would be most helpful in that situation? Probably the folks that have the training, right? Or think about it like in the medical world. You have an injury. Uh, You're not exactly sure what to do. So on one end of the spectrum, popular with a lot of parents, hey, if you're not sure what to do, the kid's crying, what do you do? That's right, you put a Band-Aid on it, right? And you kiss it, and remarkably, it gets better, right? Or at least the kid thinks so, for a while. On the other end of the spectrum of care is our people, doctors, men and women that are highly trained and very skilled, surgeons, specialists. They can offer a higher degree of care. And I want you to understand that in the body of Christ, he wants us well-functioning. You remember what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12? It says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. God wants his people equipped, trained, and actively working. And I want you to know that in our church we are about to take the next step in caring. We not only want to understand why caring is important and to care, we want to get good at it. And we've got a group of people that are called part of a Stephen ministry. They are Stephen leaders that have been undergoing intensive amount of training to get good at caring and get good at training others to care. Stephen ministry is a one-on-one caring ministry. It's Christ-centered. It's confidential and it's meant to bring the love of Christ to the hurting. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to commission these Stephen leaders to give you a kind of a picture of what Stephen leaders are like. They're like white blood cells in your body. You know, when you have an infection, you know what happens? These white blood cells are in your bloodstream. They all go to where the infection is because they're going to deal with it. And that's what Stephen ministry does. There's a problem. There's someone that's hurt. They're the ones that like build a chain, like link arm to arm, and they're bringing the love and the care of Christ. All of us are to care, and we want to get good at it. I just want you to tell just kind of some of the needs that you'd find in any church. There are people that are grieving, the terminally ill, their families, the homebound, victims of disaster. You've got folks that are... Unemployed, facing a job crisis, major life transitions, the elderly, the lonely, chronic illness, disability, divorced, the separated. And what is needed is not avoidance, like, oh, I'm just going to go around this. I don't want to get involved. What is needed is the love, compassion, the care of Christ. What is needed is community. Because caring for others is a kingdom priority. It's not an option. Friends, it's our opportunity to experience and express the love of God. So at this time, I'm going to invite uh, those Stephen ministry leaders. You've been doing all the training. I want you to come up here.